This morning's scripture reading will be from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks, Tony. You may have heard this story about a lady named Alice who bought a parrot on one Monday. Because she could not get it to talk, she returned to the pet store the next day. He needs a ladder, she was told. So Alice bought a ladder for her parrot. Yet another day passed by, still no word from the parrot. How about a swing, the store clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing the following day. Still no results. So the day after that, she purchased a mirror. And the day after that, she purchased a plastic tree. Running out of patience, since that parrot had still not uttered a single word, Alice bought a shiny parrot toy. Now we're to Sunday morning, and Alice is standing outside the pet store when the store opens. She had a parrot, the parrot cage in her hand, and she had tears in her eyes because her parrot was dead. Did it ever say a word, the store owner asked. Yes, Alice said through her sobbing. Right before he died, he looked me in the eye and he said, don't they sell any food at that pet store? <laughs> I trust that you would agree with me this morning that for the believer in Jesus Christ, for people like you and me, there are many worthy causes. There are many fulfilling pursuits. There are many significant activities that can occupy the time and the attention of a follower of Christ. We could think of many examples that we put ourselves to that task this morning. However, in the same way that no amount of parrot cage amenities could make up for a lack of parrot food, nothing can adequately substitute for what God intended to be the central focus of your life and mine. There are no good substitutes. Consequently, unless our lives are centered on what God wants to be at the center, we cannot experience the fullness and the depth of what he designed for each of us. We will be settling for counterfeits. We will fail to have the long-term, deep, even eternal impact that God has just woven into us and designed into us at the moment of our salvation. So that is to say that unless your life and mine are built upon and structured around what God considers most important, our souls will become like Alice's parrot, starving in the midst 
of a crowded cage. I invite you right now to take just a moment before you and the Lord, you won't have to give your answers to anybody else, but if you would give a moment's thought to identifying what your life is centered around. What are you building your life around? Another way of getting at it. What is the main thing in your life? What are you most passionate about? When your mind has an opportunity just to reflect, there are no pressures upon you whatsoever, uh, nothing is weighing you down, where does your mind tend to go? What does it tend to focus upon? What do you most enjoy talking about? What is it that truly defines you? Now, I want to shift your thinking slightly by asking what you think God says should be at the center of your life. What do you think God, if he were to weigh in, and actually he has, what do you think he says about what should be most important in your life and my life as followers of Jesus Christ? Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 3. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and what is that, Paul? That Christ died for our sins. While there's many different callings, ambitions, ministries, pursuits that we can give ourselves to, and we know this, so many different areas of service in the kingdom work that God has, has called us to, there is one transcendent, one overarching truth that should define our lives. There's one truth that should motivate us to do whatever we do, and it should affect every part of who we are. What is that truth? Paul stated right there in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 3, the truth that Christ died for our sins. That one incomparably important truth, the truth of the gospel, is what God wants you and wants me to be absolutely passionate about. It is to say that there is nothing of equal or greater significance than the truth that God sent his son into the world to live a perfect life, to die on a cross so as to bear his wrath, God's wrath, against your sin and mine so that we could be reconciled to him after being forgiven by him. That is the all-important truth. That's the truth that God wants us to be passionate about. He wants us to be passionate in thinking about it, passionate in dwelling upon it, passionate in rejoicing about it, passionate in allowing that to color the way we see absolutely every other person and every event that occurs in our lives. So that brings us to, uh, and in your notes you have this, only one thing only one thing can be of first importance to us, and only the gospel should be. Just one thing of first importance. Now, I want to bring that vital truth. We're still kind of up here, a little higher on the bookshelf. I want to bring it down to a little bit lower shelf by calling your attention to a biblical text that identifies a very central principle in how it is that we can actually make and keep 
the gospel at the center of our lives. That's what we want to try to get some insight into today from God's word. How can I, since that is, the gospel is to be of central importance, of first importance, how is it that I can really make it of first importance in my life and how can I keep it of first importance? How is it that I can make and keep the message of the cross as the foundation on which my life is built? And Dear brother, Tony read that text for us a moment ago. Let's come right back to it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is one of those texts where one realizes you could do a series just on that one passage and still know that you haven't done much more than scratch the surface. It has immense death, depth and immense, well, there's even death. We're to die to ourselves, right? But it also has incredible insight for how we are to keep the gospel central in our lives. Enough of the build-up, let's read it again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And why is that? We have died. There has been a death. And our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you also will appear with him in glory. What is Paul's point there? Essentially, and I'm really, um, man, it deserves a lot more emphasis than one we give it today, but we're going we're gonna to take this stab at it. Through saving faith in Jesus Christ, we who are Christians have been rescued from spiritual death. Right? Isn't that an amazing reality? And not only that, we have been brought or been given spiritual life, eternal life. This new life, according to what Paul says, is the product of our union with Jesus Christ. In other words, Scripture talks so much, and he refers to it here, that, that whole concept that to be a Christian means we are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Because of those things, we are in Christ. As a result of that identification, more great news. We have died to the authority or the reign or the dominating control of sin because sin was our old master during our old life, which was before we came to Christ. Now we have a whole new master. Now, do we often feel like sin is still our master? Do we often feel like no matter how hard we try, somehow we're giving in to temptation? Does it feel frequently like we are still under the weight and the oppressive burden of Satan's domination or control over our lives? The answer for me is absolutely yes. Thankfully, positionally in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from that. We're alive spiritually under the dominion of a new master, Jesus Christ. And so, taking it one step further, that's great to know, isn't it? That is very important information to know. There are very few truths of Scripture that tell us who we are in Christ that are more uplifting than that. But, it begs the question that flows out of that positional truth. And that question is this. What difference is it supposed to make? Kind of a basic question. What difference do these truths that Paul has just identified 
What difference is that supposed to make in the way that we're living our lives on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis? In your notes, we have the answer, because Scripture provides it. I didn't come up with it. I just I found it in Scripture, and I plagiarize. Because our union with Christ brings us new life, the way that we live our lives should also be new. Please, just let that stick in the mind for a little bit, because there's more to that statement than we might realize. Because our union with Christ brings us new life, the way that we live our lives should also be new. It is saying this, it should be different from the way that we lived our lives before we surrendered them to Christ's control. It is to say this, that as believers who have received new life, spiritual life, life in Christ, life that is possible only through Christ, we should be characterized by a new way of living. A way of living that... um, has a completely different perspective, a completely different motivation than we had before we became new creatures in Christ. So do you get that? New identity, we're new people in Christ, we have new life, that means there should be a new way of living. It's described and characterized many ways throughout the scripture. I'm going to call your attention to one specific passage at this point. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, Verses 17 through 21, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears, those folks are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they, their glory, they glory excuse me, in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And that's why the things he just said about them are true, because their mind is not set on things that are above, it's focused on earthly things. Then this statement, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Now, of course, I highlighted that one phrase in there, but our citizenship is in heaven. Critically important, central to what he is saying there. I find it interesting that the Greek word translated citizenship is used only this one place in the New Testament. That, that's usually a key that, pay attention. It refers to the place where a person has official status. The place where a person has official status. Or the commonwealth where one's name is recorded on the register of citizens. So we have this phrase in your notes. You might want to scribble in some blanks. Though believers live in this world... Though believers live in this world, they are citizens of heaven. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Paul says, you are a citizen of heaven. Yes, you have earthly residence. I understand the citizenship. Some of you even have um, dual citizenship between a couple of countries. Far more important is we recognize our ultimate citizenship 
True citizenship, eternal citizenship, is in heaven. It is to say we're members together of Christ's kingdom. Our names are recorded in heaven. Pretty amazing thing. It is also saying that our Savior is there. The one who we desire to spend eternity with. Our inheritance is there. Our reward is there. Our treasure is there as well. We're citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul is emphasizing in both Colossians 3 and Philippians 3 that if you're in Christ, if you're genuinely His, you have His life in you, you are under His rule, and you live for heaven's cause. Once again, did you, man, I'm firing out at, uh, in rapid fire succession here, but grasp this, we're new people in Jesus Christ if we've trusted in Him alone for our salvation. That means we have a new identity that should be matched by a new life. And if Jesus truly is our Lord and Master, if we have received that new life in Him, then certain things are true. We're under His rule, we live for heaven's cause, and we have His life in us. This new way of living, and this is in your notes as well, you might want to jot this one down, this new way of living that should characterize the new person in Jesus Christ could be described as allowing your preoccupation with heaven to govern your earthly conduct. Allowing our preoccupation with heaven to govern our earthly conduct. A tangent that would be very easy to get off on and I'll only take maybe one step we, we hear that expression so often about you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I think that is exactly the opposite of truth. Unless we're sufficiently earthly minded, excuse me, good, you're listening. <laughs> you can tell I've heard it so many times and probably repeated it wrong in growing up. But unless we are sufficiently heavenly minded, don't have a lot of earthly good. When you get right down to it, what are we pointing people to? What are we living our lives around? How are we of help to anybody? We're far too attached to the world. But what does it mean to allow our preoccupation with heaven to govern our earthly conduct? Here's a stab at it. To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the Lord who lives there. Preoccupied with Jesus. Preoccupied with what He has done on our behalf. Preoccupied with the message of of the gospel, preoccupied with the cross and what took place there. It means that we view the things, the people, the events of this world through Christ's eyes and according to His values. It means that we evaluate our goals, our plans, our activities, our choices, our career ambitions, our moral standards, everything on the basis of what has eternal, not merely temporal, value, and impact. Rather than being preoccupied with these kind of things, like we wrestle with and we wrestle against putting too much attention, too much focus on things like achievement, position, education, fashion, possessions, popularity, status, comfort, security, 
on and on and on. That stuff so easily gets a grip on us and, 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 and shifts our loyalty away from the message and the truth of the cross and the, the truth and reality of who Jesus is. Paul calls us. He calls us to focus our minds and set our hearts on what has value for eternity. That is precisely what he means by the command in Colossians 3, keep seeking the things that are above. Let me help unpack that in a way that helps this somewhat lame brain at times get a better picture of it. It's referring to a chosen orientation. A chosen orientation. One of the helpful things I learned from my years in the Boy Scouts was the use of a compass. And so I'll draw upon that vast knowledge. That, no, I hardly know anything. What I do remember is, though, that the needle of a compass orients itself to the north and then follows with a very clear resolve to go that one direction. And so the Christian should seek to fall in line with the pull of God toward heaven, toward eternity, toward things that will matter for, for all of eternity, toward spiritual truths, spiritual realities, spiritual objectives, spiritual values. You say, what does it even look like when then we are following the analogy of the compass, but we're falling in line with the pull of God toward heaven. Things start to happen. Things like we start to value um, serving over getting. We uh, start to value forgiving over avenging. Uh, these are the kind of changes that begin to take place. It's the new way of living that should match our new identity in Jesus Christ. Let me try to provide some additional illustration to, to see uh, if, if this principle can really lock in. It was about 130 A.D. that a man, actually an astronomer and mathematician by the name of Ptolemy, I'm not sure you're going to recognize him. That's why I told you his name. He taught that the center of our solar system was the Earth and that everything revolved around it. His theory was accepted. People, in essence, acted upon that for 1,300 years till another one of our friends by the name of Copernicus, a Polish astronomer and mathematician, proved that theory to be an illusion. Copernicus demonstrated that the sun is actually the center of the solar system and that everything else revolves around it, not around the earth. Why I'm saying that is this. This is both autobiographical and it's probably biographical for you as believers in Christ too. Far too often, we who are Christians seem to be living under a Ptolemaic illusion. Even though, as Paul said, we are raised up with Christ we give evidence that we believe that this present world is the center of our universe, our own personal universe, rather than heaven being the center of our universe. 
there's no question that we're living in a culture that is going to take us in the direction. I mean, talk about a culture that lives under the Ptolemaic illusion of anything that has importance and value and meaning significance. It's here and now. It can be touched, felt, smelt, smelled. Anyway, one of those. Um, it, it's all about the present. Keep your mind off things that are well into the future. There is no such thing as eternity would be its way of thinking. In reality, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not this present world, is the center of the believer's universe. Our relationship to Him should drive and define everything that we do. He's everything to us. Only the message of the cross, only the fact that Jesus died for our sins, only that can be of first importance. The key to living a new life in Christ, to living consistent with who we are now that we have that new identity, the key to living on earth as a resident of heaven is to live with Christ at the very center of our lives. Live with eternity in view. Live on the basis of an eternal perspective. Live in the light of the cross. It was nearly 20 years ago, the man who you might have heard of more than Ptolemy and Copernicus, a man by the name of John Piper, pastor, Bible teacher, author, he delivered a message to young adults that many believe has shaped a generation of believers. Powerful message. He challenged his audience to choose between two conflicting pursuits in life. Two different desires, mutually conflicting desires. The first is what Piper referred to, and we've heard this phraseology, as the American dream. The American dream. I don't need to describe it too much because we've billions of dollars are paid on a yearly basis to convince us to pursue it. So I think we got a pretty good feel of it, but Piper basically characterized it as a happy, successful, comfortable life, one that's eventually marked by a long and leisurely retirement. And along the way, one finds a good job, marries a good spouse, has good kids, nice car, nice house, lots of nice things, really enjoyable weekends, large nest egg, and so on. The second pursuit that Piper described in absolute, I think there's a word, contradistinction, anyway, complete opposite of that American dream is making a genuine, lasting difference for Jesus. Living our lives for His sake, His glory, His mission, His values, etc. Piper wanted to convince the students to whom he spoke that evening that these two dreams are fully opposed to each other. And so he set up a contrast by telling two stories that clearly illustrate the two different dreams, the two different pursuits. First, he tells about two members of his church, and I'm quoting from Piper at this point. In April of 2000, Ruby Elias and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, 
and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. Next, and in contrast, Piper relates a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest entitled, Start Now, Retire Early. It tells about a couple who, quote, took retirement early from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they sail, or excuse me, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. In response to this story, Piper declared, tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one, your only, your precious, your God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shell collection? And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. Piper says, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And then Piper added, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. Don't waste your life. In that sermon that many Christian leaders point to as one of the most influential ones in our generation, John Piper held up the American dream. He tested it against the light of eternity and the judgment seat of Christ, and it failed miserably. It tanked. He brought a whole generation to a fork in the road and forced them to choose comfort, success, prosperity, and thereby essentially waste their lives. Or they could choose Christ and experience the glory of making their lives count for Christ like Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards. As he actually told that story to his congregation in a little bit different setting, after he told the story about the death of Ruby and Laura plunging off a cliff and kind of asked him, now, how many of you think that's a tragedy? Of course, that some committed to it one way or another or didn't know how to respond, probably kept the hand down, which I would have done. But he said, then he went to that next story. He said, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. So with his own congregation, that's how he led into the second story. Shortly after that particular illustration, what has sometimes been referred to as the Shell's illustration, Piper condensed his main point down to a rhyme that was first composed by C.T. Studd. I love that name for a missionary, actually. <laughs> to me, that's so appropriate. 
remarkable servant of Christ, born in England in 1860, one who guided mission enterprises in China, India, Africa. He famously stated, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Today, I plead with you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, make your life count for the cross. Only the message of the cross is of first importance. I acknowledge this. Whatever may actually, as it perhaps in real honesty earlier, you identified what your life is focused on, what you're building your life around, what you think about most, what you like to talk about most, what truly defines you, uh, all of those different things, what you're passionate about. If in your honesty, you realize that what was first importance of you is a good thing, you're probably very right. It could be a very honorable thing. It could be worthwhile. It could be admirable. It could be beneficial to you and to others. And perhaps your life is so wrapped up in it that you have trouble imagining that it actually is of secondary importance according to what God's Word has to say. And so I implore you, here's the appeal. You see it in your notes on the screen. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to make the gospel the driving ambition, the unquestionable preoccupation, the primary motivation, and the highest priority in your life. Ask God to make any and all changes in your heart. So like Paul said in Galatians 6.14, you can genuinely say, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was uh, preparing that message through the week, I thought it's very possible. I know, I think I know many of the limits of my own abilities to communicate. And that also means that sometimes you communicate something you, you didn't necessarily in intend to communicate. And I would not want to communicate anything that God's word doesn't intend to communicate. So, here's clarification. If I was very wrong in what I was saying, if your takeaway is this, you know, I actually have a hobby. Uh, I, I, I enjoy that. Or, uh, you know, I've, um, I belong to such and such club. Or, I'm a part of a group that does such and such. I guess I've got to give all that up, right? If that's what you concluded, my failure, my bad, as they say in this day and time. What we're saying is only the gospel can have first importance. Take that hobby. Take that association you have with other people. Take this pursuit. Take that, whatever it is, leverage it for God's kingdom work. Use it to the full. Maybe get more involved in it than you are now. But with a, a very strong, clear focus of helping people to see eternity help people see the cross, help people see and understand the life of Jesus through that. And so, I'm going to show a few pictures on the screen right now. A dear brother of mine named Leroy Miller, who's a part of our church family. If you if you even close to knowing much about Leroy, you know that he spends a lot more time outside than he does inside. Hardly needs a house. Uh, but 
fortunately, Joy's glad that they have a house. It has been the burden and the passion of this man who's in his mid-70s. I don't give away people's ages, <laughs> specifically. One of the primary missions that he has adopted through his hunting and fishing passion is to help mold and shape children's lives according to values and a lifestyle that's consistent with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Gets them away from cell phones and video games and all the rest. Sometimes it's driving time, it's sometimes it's out in the field itself. Uh, many times it's to build them up and encourage them. A lot of times, uh, in, in some cases, it's been individuals who, boy, the sports thing isn't working, they're not excelling in scholastics or, you know, not feeling real super about themselves. And he helps them. And whenever he takes somebody out, they catch what they're going after. And in the meantime, Leroy has used that, that I, I suppose if we put all the hours that you've put into that, Leroy, and weeks, it would add up to probably just years of hours, but it has a focus. So if Leroy were to hear from this, and I know he doesn't because we met last week to talk this over, but if Leroy were to conclude, oh gosh, is he saying I've got to give up fishing and hunting? Oh, the kingdom would take a hit. It would suffer a negative impact. So that's what I'm saying. And Leroy, I love you. love your story. Joy, you're amazing. <laughs> uh, and what you have, have sacrificed. I know you've gone sometimes too, and it wasn't that he had to pull you like that. But do you get the message? That's what I'm saying. So that's evidence of some kingdom work taking place right there. Uh, don't you love it when a mission field is as beautiful as some of the places he goes? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you make it so clear to us